Welcome to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast series based on readings from old Knoxville newspapers. I'm Melissa Brenneman, Robbie Griffith is the reader, and Knox County historian Steve Cottom provides the commentary. Two articles picked from the 1920s and 30s appreciate the development of Market Square as a farmer's market. The articles have been edited for this podcast. Knoxville News Sentinel, November 27, 1932, by Steve Humphrey. The ghosts of ancient aldermen may well hover over Market Square, and shades of pioneer merchants smoothing their aprons across their breasts may stand behind the counters of the historic stalls. High up on the third floor of City Hall, in the now musty and unused council chamber, the aldermen of old may gather in the spirit underneath a deep-toned bell that once warned of fire and disaster. The square, as property of the city, is in its 80th year. The first market operated by the city was opened 79 years ago next Friday. It was not the first market, but it is the one that has been in operation as such continuously since it was opened, and it probably will remain in use as a market, for when the city abandons it as such, most of the property will revert to the Swan and Mabry heirs. The first city market, on Main Avenue between Walnut and Market Streets, was 26 by 18 feet. Thursdays and Saturdays were designated as market days. Apparently, it wasn't a success, for in 1823 it was sold and removed. A quarter of a century later, the city's archives show that the idea of a city market was revived. The Swan and Mabry deed is dated March 21, 1853. The aldermen voted to build a market house May 2, 1853, and it was formally opened January 31, 1854. Two other deeds tell a story of shrewd and profitable trading by J.W. Griffin, who sold to the city the property where the old three-story brick city hall stands. One deed shows that Griffin bought this 92-by-40-foot tract from Joseph Mabry, February 10, 1865, for $300, and the other that Griffin sold it to the city, March 22, 1866, for $650. City halls came cheap then, The minutes show the aldermen decided in June 1867 to build on this north tract a structure at a cost not to exceed $5,500. And now there are two histories, one of Market Hall and one of City Hall, although the walls of the two are set end to end. Blue-coated soldiers were billeted in the market house, and the aldermen decided to be considerate to the tradesmen who were deprived of their stalls by deducting one month's rent for loss of use during the siege in 1862. It is not shown what the stall rent was at that time, but two years later it was fixed at $12 a month. City officials were so alarmed by the storing of ammunition in the building that they petitioned General Tilson to remove some of it on the theory if it did blow up, then the disaster wouldn't be so great. Business picked up after the war, For on July 16, 1869, it was voted to build a 90-foot addition to the market on the southeast end. Two gas lights were installed in 1870 as a protection against thieves and to afford butchers light as they prepared their meat for sale. A brick floor was laid in 1871, and four years later, agitation for a new building was reflected in the minutes of the Board of Aldermen. 
By March 10, 1882, this had reached the point where the citizens petitioned that the building was not only inadequate, but unsafe. Repairs were ordered in 1882. Civilization must have been coming along, too, for on October 24, 1893, the board decided that privies for the use of operators of stalls and the public should be built. And now the minutes are silent, until October 2, 1896, when Mayor Sam Heiskell recommended a new market house. He suggested the removal of the fire department from the first floor of the city hall, the expansion of the market into this room, and the construction of a new building from the hall to Union Avenue. And that's Market Hall as it stands today, with its rows of stalls on the first floor, its auditorium and American Legion quarters on the second floor. If you don't mind dirt and cobwebs, you can still see the old quarters of the city officials and the council chamber on the two floors above the fish market. A ladder leads through the garret up to the tower where the great bell cast by Henry McShane and Company, Baltimore, in 1883, hangs. In former days, it sounded the fire alarm and signaled to policemen. The signal mechanism remains. The 1,200-pound weight and cable that was wound daily by policemen furnished the power for the clapper, released by Button in the office of the chief of police below. The plans for this city hall were presented to the alderman July 6, 1888, and the minutes note the architect had made a mistake in his estimate. He found the building would cost $13,000 instead of $9,225. Eventually, it cost more than $14,000. It must have been a proud day when the alderman first sat in the new council chamber. Even the recorder put on a few extra flourishes to his longhand as he wrote that the board in May met in the council room of the new city hall Friday evening, March 29, A.D. 1889. Martin J. Condon was mayor, and there the seat of city government remained including, for a time, the Calaboose, until the present Buckingham Palace was formally opened February 10, 1929. Memories of days when the wind and dust sailed through the market house and when butchers went to work at 3 a.m. are still vivid in the minds of R.R. R. Pete Haynes and D.B. Kaywood. These two veterans have cut meat longer than any other men in the market house, their stalls today are side by side. They remember well, too well, the old market. It was about as long as the distance of seven posts in the present market, Haynes said. The doors are made of slats, three inches wide and three inches between. That's all. The wind came through and blew in the dust and dirt. I've seen it 18 and 20 degrees below zero and snow on the ground. Was it cold in here? And all we had were little stoves. Between the old market house and the city hall was what amounted to a stockyard. I bought cattle there many a day. Later, a shed was put up so that it was covered, and they let people put in vegetable stalls back to back. They had benches where people who carried in things could sell them. If you brought in your produce on wheels, though, you had to stay outside where the hucksters' wagons are now. There was a fountain in the middle where you could water stock. I remember how in cold weather we used to put our fresh meat in Jack Burke's bar across the street to keep it from freezing. If we didn't, it would get so hard we couldn't cut it with a knife. I made good money while they were building the new market house. The city let us put up stalls along the sidewalk and didn't charge us rent. 
Haynes, who will have been in the market house 40 years in January, started at $7.50 a week. Kaywood, who has been in the market 42 or 43 years, shuddered as he recalled how the dust and soot settled on the produce. We used to kill an animal and cover the carcass with green brush to keep off the flies, he said. We opened up in the morning and had to quit at 10.30 a.m. When the bell rang at 10.30, you could finish waiting on your customer, but if you started to wait on another, you were subject to a $5 fine. Vegetable stalls and all had to close. Saturdays, we were open all day. Another reason for selling out early in the day was the fact that there were no refrigerating facilities. We used to have what we called bargain hunters on Saturday night, Kaywood said. They knew we'd have to dispose of our meat or let it spoil. They'd wait until closing time, and then we'd push it out on the counter and sell it by lot for whatever we could get for it. The Knoxville Journal, August 25, 1929, by Ruth Naomi Scott. Could Knoxville have another market square? It has been interesting lately to watch this question swing from the idea of a new market site back to that of simply enlarging Market Square. Somehow, Market Square lies at the center of all that makes Knoxville individual. Knoxville never wonders why a great rectangular curb market 350 feet long cuts through the gilt-edged business section of the city. To Knoxville, that's Market Square. It belongs there. Only strangers wonder at their first view of the long, jammed lines of antiquated wagons and fords and trucks of vegetables in the very heart of the city. At first glance, the beauty of the vegetables and flowers burdening the old wagons and new trucks crowds out everything else. Here, a rickety old ford with a rickety old lady offers yellow corn and loosened honey. Jostling it is a huge truck, overflowing with roasting ears, melons, shelled peas, chicks in coops, butter, eggs, grapes, dahlias, cottage cheese, beans, potatoes, tomatoes, okra, and above all, cured bacon dangles with scales. For the moment, the main fascination of Market Square, the quaint folk tending the produce, are not seen. Then you see the ankle-length dress of the women, long hair slicked back to the pioneer biscuit knot, the men in slouchy, wrinkled store bridges or greasy overalls, the long-discarded galluses in full view of beards that Noah could well envy. These seem to come out of their background of the fruits of the earth from a remote past as Henrik Hudson's queer crew appeared to Rip Van Winkle. The mingled smells of fresh produce and dust and a jolly chuckling hum accompanies the business of, Lady, don't you want some sorghum? Or fresh roasting years right out in the patch, lady? Eggs just laid? A primitive wholesomeness thrills the air and makes the mere sale of potatoes exciting. It's the animation of country folk having a big day in town, the sort of pleasure you haven't felt since you were a child. Through the sales talk runs to a social stream of, Hello, howdy. Say, he lives yon side of Vestal. Fella, are you fixing to eat? The independence of these folk is more striking than their quaint talk. 
There is no self-consciousness in their bearing. They have no inferiority complex. In fact, they have a complacent air. The street is theirs, as their fields and potatoes are. They don't have to dress or talk as city folks, but as they see fit to dress and talk. They move leisurely on the pavement. Things and people can just get out of their way. The market does belong to the country folk, and like these folk, it has been practically the same for a hundred years. Few know that Knoxville's curb market is 113 years old this year of 1929. In 1816, to be exact, Knoxville, just incorporated as a town, erected a market house in the center of Main Street between Walnut, then called Crooked Street, and Market, then known as Prince Street. Later, in 1853, Joseph A. Mabry and William G. Swan donated the property, now Market Square, to the city to be used as a public market. The old deed reads, So long as sad lot of ground is so used as aforesaid by the mayor and aldermen and their successors, so long will the said Swan and Mabry warrant and defend the title to them in and to sad lot of ground. Upon abandonment of the ground for the purpose aforesaid, the same with any tenements or buildings thereon, shall revert to the said Swan or Mabry, their heirs and assigns. The second market house was a frame building with stalls down the center, each stall heated by a little stove. In winter, even with the stoves, the meat frequently froze. At the north end of the square was an open stock market and public scales. Here beef and mutton were sold on the hoof and weighed. Here, too, stood the calaboose. The Scotch saw no incongruity in linking food and civic punishment. Both were necessities. Watermelon Row was a line of wagons parked in the shade of the graveyard at the site of the former church building of the Second Presbyterian Church on Market Street. Today, many in Knoxville remember the thrilling spell of ice-cold lemonade made in the shade, stirred with a big wooden spade, issuing from shady Watermelon Row on circus days. The present market house is not picturesque like the open ragged market. It is a dignified two-story structure that extends imposingly down the center of the square almost its entire length of 350 feet. Building it was a civic achievement, and a tablet in the South End lobby informs you the building was erected in 1897. Since Knoxville's market is linked to its earliest history, it is not surprising to find it governed by rules that are historic. Some are changeless. A merchant cannot buy produce and sell it from a wagon. Only hucksters can sell. Produce cannot be bought from one wagon and sold in another. Permits are issued to all who sell on the curb, but cost nothing. Until this summer, wagons and trucks were removed only Saturday night by the city, and replaced Monday morning. On account of the present traffic congestion, a ruling has just been made that all trucks and wagons on the curb must be removed every night at 9 o'clock. The inside market, the splendid length of stalls on both sides of the long walls of the market house, is noted for the quality and variety of produce offered. First, the fish market, native and shipped-in sea fish, an excellent meat market where some merchants have two and three stalls, then down or up three steps into the stalls of green produce, 
each stall dressed up like the prize booth at a state fair. These present a sight of plenty that Knoxville loves to show visitors. Down the center of the inside market are the free stalls for the women, three-tiered shelves where they can display their wares attractively. The merchants in the stalls pay rent, but these women pay none. These women sell in a market house with modern heat, light, and refrigeration, with no more overhead than they had in pioneer days. This inside market is the coveted spot of the market woman. The women sit before their displays, homemade butter, dressed plump chickens in dishpans of ice, cheese in paper containers, eggs, flowers, vegetables, all toothsome and inviting. Somehow they are more fascinating than the conventional stalls. Until the women sell out, the stalls get little rush. The women here are younger and better dressed than those in the curb market. The inside market women are the modern rural businesswoman stepping out in an old enterprise. Here and there, though, the direct descendant of the pioneer is seen. Has this inside market meant much to the farm woman? You ask a woman, heavy with years and struggles with the earth's contrariness, man's too doubtless. Only God in heaven knows what it has meant to Knox County women, she answers reverently. We can bring anything we got here, meant from the crick, sorghum, molasses, bread or cake we bake, or honey our bees make. Anything we got, and sell it as good as them stalls that pays high rent. A little further down, a young woman presents a dainty, white-clad baby to a group of old women. They admire, chuckle, and exclaim. For a minute, the shuffling of customers' feet along the lanes between the food displays is drowned out. No aspect of the market is more important than the good times these old cronies and younger women have. This break in farm drudgery, so like penal solitude, has doubtless lessened insanity in Knox County country women. As it has freed them from isolation, it has also freed them from the hard bondage of lack of cash. The jolly air with which they store away the money their customers hand them is at the bottom of that carefreeness that buzzes through the market. Market Square is the hub of an expanding radius. One man has, quote, brung his apples 170 miles from North Carolina, unquote. Women come from other countries and states, and the inside market reaches out a bit for its produce. One stall imports endives from France, avocado pears from South America, coconuts from South American islands, spinach from the West Indies, onions from Bermuda, honeydew cantaloupes from the Imperial Valley, and citrus fruits from California and Florida. The sales of the women in the center of the market house on a good Saturday amounts to $5,000. The total sales of the market house are quoted at 20000 One stall, when times are good, takes in 2000 on a Saturday. But the vast, homely, quaint, teeming, fascinating curb market still leads in sales. Only no one can estimate them. The open market sells to the public, the suburban grocers, the fancy grocers, and the stalls in the market house. One huckster sold out his load in an hour for $150 and went home for another load. No one knows how many more loads he will sell before night. The truck or wagon is kept in the same place all week and replenished from the farm. 
Nothing is more interesting than a trip around the square at the off-selling hour in the afternoon of a good Saturday. Wagons are deserted for chats with friends as men and women mill around the pavements deliberately. Some few have spent some money. Young girls clasping suitcases penetrate the crowd as if suddenly winged with exultance. A woman with a shopping bag strutted with packages waddles happily beneath her load. Many of these have spent nights in town while selling out their loads, but their economical Scotch souls have made them sleep on cots in the entrance to Burns Store or somewhere on bedding in Market Square Store's doors. As a limb of oak cut through, a cross-section reveals the yearly increase in girth from the core to the bark, so the Scotch fiber at the center of these market folk has grown by slow round of decades to the circumference of today, an exterior only slightly modernized. Their forebears tough courage and blunt power to live or die in pursuit of a free heartstone on land they owned is doggedly alive in them today. The industrial influx into our state has not touched them yet, but it will if we do not uphold colonial ideals of freedom by laws that will protect the labor of these country folk, particularly their women and children, in the great manufacturing hour upon us. Could we lose them and have Market Square? No more than Knoxville could have another market than Market Square. For the commentary on this podcast, I am very happy that joining Knox County historian Steve Cottom is author Jack Neely. He has just written Market Square, A History of the Most Democratic Place on Earth, a nicely illustrated book of very interesting facts and anecdotes in Market Square's history. So welcome, Jack, and as always, welcome, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. What was the most interesting thing that you learned when you were researching for this book about Market Square that you did not know before? My gosh, there's so many things that, uh, you know, when I began writing my column back in the early 90s, Market Square just kept popping up. It was, I was familiar with the place, but, but I had no idea how much of a role that it played in almost every drama in Knoxville history. Um, but the things that I came across that I'd never heard of... Um, some things like the B.R. Strong store, which had an entrance on Gay Street and on Market Square, and apparently had a bridge across the alley. This is something I'd never heard of, never found any picture of, or, mm-hmm. or, or just a couple of descriptions of. But, but in the 1880s or 90s, it had some kind of a bridge across the alley, which is sometimes called Strong Alley, maybe for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that was such a—it was an enormous store, and, and uh, what's perplexing about about a lot of history, but uh, about this in particular is how completely forgotten so much of these generations are. This was a story that was such a big deal at the time, and no one alive remembers it. Mm-hmm. It is amazing, uh, because Market Square was really the hub of city life from sometime after its inception up until the middle part of the 20th century, really. Yeah. Uh, the people came and went around the city on foot or by a streetcar or whatever. That's true. And that was sort of the crossroads for everybody. Yeah, and the subtitle of the book is uh, uh, The Most Democratic Place on Earth. Uh, 
That was a description in 1900 by an unnamed reporter who described Market Square at Christmas time, and he said black and white, rich mm. and poor, literally everybody had had some kind of business on Market Square, and it was like that for the reasons you say that it was uh, it was walking distance of most of the original part of Knoxville, but also on, it was on the streetcar lines. Anybody could get there. You know, if you could get out of your house, you could get to Market Square. But the kind of the irony of uh, the fact that it it was acknowledged as the hub of city life until the 20s or so probably, but that was when it started getting interesting to uh, literary people, to writers. And, and I think most of the descriptions of Market Square in novels and so forth are from this period when it was being ignored by the city, more or less. It was beginning to be old-fashioned. Yeah. And that, that's the really sad part because so many cities, larger cities, have these old market houses that have survived mm-hmm. and still flourish. That's with true. ethnic food and all kinds of interesting things. And and if Knoxville had just been a little luckier, this building could have survived. But as a preservationist by instinct, I'm not sure that I wish the market house were still there. I have to admit that oh. because it's uh, it works very nice as an open square now. Oh, and I think yeah. that if, if it were still there, we would have had to find somewhere else downtown to put an open square. And uh, and I I think it's very functional as it is. I'm I'm, oh. I'm barely too young to remember the market house. Oh. I think it was torn down when I was about two years old. But it's just a huge. It was a huge, tall building mm-hmm. that uh, that 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 uh, you know cast a shadow on everything on the on, yeah. on kind of overwhelmed space a little bit. It was yeah. a Bowman building, yeah. um, and one of their I guess it was one of their biggest buildings. I mean, they did a lot of major buildings in downtown, like Immaculate Conception Church, a number of which are still standing. But that was one of their their biggest projects to date in 1897, and it was very very progressive. At the time, to have a, the public meeting hall was a big issue for the city. They wanted an auditorium, mm-hmm. and they got one in there in, in that building that would seat um, maybe a thousand people. And so, if anybody really important, like Booker T. Washington or somebody that was a major figure, came and spoke somewhere, that was the yeah. place. Yeah, exactly. The place other than the opera house where you might get together and have a public meeting. Yeah, that was one of the most interesting things, and I, I wish I had a list of all the people who spoke there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just included in the book things that I happened to run across over the years, but Booker T. Washington was one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, William James Bryan, local heroes like Robert Love Taylor. A lot of odd, interesting characters like early uh, socialist uh, advocates were, were there and, and actually got, a, I think, a better hearing in, in 1905 <laughs> than, than they would today. Well, I think so, too. (laughs) There's a couple of things that sort of brought together the end of the market house, and I think we do have to blame Kaz Walker for uh, part of that. Uh, Well, he he wanted to remove it and uh, build a a parking garage there, I think, in the middle of the square. Mm. Um, But he got so mad that when they didn't build the parking garage, he pulled up stakes and left Market Square. And I didn't prove this, but I think that he just left his tour vacant on purpose there mm-hmm. for a long time just to thumb his nose at the Market Square Mall development in the, in the 60s. It uh, was, was torn down after arson, and there were people who pointed the finger at Kaz, although that's yeah. probably yeah. not true. I yeah. think a uh, young man with some mental issues yeah. apparently yeah. set fire to the building, and the damage was minimal uh, to it. I mean, it could easily have been saved, but at that point in time, the progressive attitude in the city was, 
if it's old and Victorian and dark and dirty, tear mm-hmm. it down mm-hmm. and we'll build something new and shiny. And, and it's funny, if you go through old newspapers, especially in the 1950s, not only in Knoxville, but across America, you start feeling that way yourself because you start mm-hmm. seeing this post-war aesthetic that they want to get rid of all the old, dirty stuff and, and have all clean new lines. And it was the new frontier. It was all this wonderful modernist uh, era that it was almost like we we're putting everything old-fashioned, even death, behind us. Yeah, I think the perfect symbol for that is the old uh, Miller's building on Gay Street that had mm-hmm. the glass box put over it and a lot, all that damage done to it. And then yeah. some of us have lived long enough to see the glass <laughs> box come off in the old Victorian, quasi-Victorian building come back out yeah, from under. Yeah, uh, and restored at, at yeah. great expense. Uh, beautifully restored. At, uh, yeah. A consultant... Uh, Nine or ten years ago, came to town and said that Market Square will never work unless you can reopen the uh, the street to the north. Market Street used to continue to the north, right. and that was another access to the square. <laughs> um, and TBA of course, towers TBA, in the Washington <laughs> towers were there, and, and that I always assumed that there was, there was always a hill there. But but in old photographs, there was a little bit of a rise, but not anything like the hill that's there now. Yeah, it went over, and then it went up, and the old Lawsonge Library was over where the Radisson kind of is today uh, yeah. over in that general area. So much of that de- that redevelopment of downtown was driven by the, to me, totally misguided idea of finding ways to move automobiles faster through downtown. Mm-hmm. The whole Summit mm-hmm. Hill development was, mm-hmm. you know, get the cars through here faster. And what, what does that do for town anyway? I don't see that. At not, all. not to mention the interstate, which is a whole other thing. They lost the old but, Commerce Fire Hall and a whole bunch of really old, beautiful buildings in that, that redevelopment project in there. Yeah. And that's really kind of where preservation sort of picked up steam. I mean, mm-hmm. you can argue about Blunt Mansion being saved in 1926, but it was really the demolition of things in downtown in, the, yeah. in the, that era when things were being torn down so quickly, yeah. people got really concerned, and, and there began to be some putting of the brakes on tearing these things yeah. down. Yeah. What about music on Market Square? Oh, what's uh, one of your favorite topics? It really is. Um, I always knew that Market Square had a, played a role in music. I always heard that the midday merry-go-round was there for about a year in the '30s, and. Uh, uh, later on, heard the story about Elvis uh, being discovered uh, via an RCA scout in a record store at, on Market Square. They, and, and this this is a uh, you could call it trivia, but it's it's I think it's a significant statement about Market Square. The fact that in the ni- early 1950s, uh, RCA believed that this one store on Market Square uh, was called Bell Sales Company, just a, a kind of a jumble of a record store was kind of a bellwether for the entire nation that hmm. music would come in there and if it became popular on Market Square it had the potential to go nationwide. That was the thinking of, of RCA of, or at least of this one scout uh, of oh. RCA uh, who went in there in 1954 before anybody ever heard of Elvis Presley and I think it was the same summer as the Sun, the original Sun Sessions mm-hmm. and uh, and Sam Morrison at Bell Sales Company had uh, an early, very early copy of, of Ellis's first disc, uh, That's Alright Mama from Memphis and uh, was playing it and, and he demonstrated to the guy, he said, uh, look what happens when I play this record and he would pipe it out into the square itself, he would put speakers out into the square and immediately people started coming in and saying, what, what is that? Let me buy that. People of all ages uh, would, were, were interested in this record. And uh, this guy, I think his name is Brad McEwen with RCA, was so impressed that he took it back to New York and said, and they, they had to work for several months to sign Elvis, but uh, and whether that was a good thing for Elvis and posterity <laughs> or not, I don't know. But I think the fact that RCA recognized Market Square as this 
this kind of cauldron of both music and customers for music um, mm. is interesting. But it goes way, way back, even back to Peter Kern's early days in the late 1860s. I found some evidence of early musical performances on Market Square, even before Staub's Opera House, before um, Nussel had auditoriums on Gay Street. But later on, of course, uh, in, I quote Bert Vincent a good deal, and Bert Vincent believed that country music as a, uh, as a publicly performed form of music began on Market Square in the 20s, that uh, when uh, Roy Acuff and people like that were playing on, on Market Square, especially in the, in the old Market Hall, which had a fairly large auditorium. It was not a huge one. I think they could uh, seat or maybe stand uh, a thousand people in there. But but Market Square, literally everything, every part of civic culture and politics, business, existed in Market Square in one way or another uh, over the years. Uh, and, and in fact, city government was there for about 60 years during a really um, Nussel's period of, of biggest growth. Uh, Nussel was a small town when it Started meeting in the old city hall in Market Square, and, and was you know was a significant city of over, over 100,000 people when when it finally left there in 1925. Mm-hmm. Um, but to think that 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 was an era when city council met there and the mayor's office was there, and if city councilmen wanted to sample public opinion uh, in Knoxville, they all they had to do was walk outside, and, oh. and you get plenty of it. <laughs> yeah. And what about food on the square? I mean, that. Oh yeah. I mean. The Gold Sun Cafe was on my mind just then because I read that uh, that if you came in, they had a small menu, but if you came in and said, I want uh, a, fi- a roasted fish or a roasted yeah. chicken or something, and they didn't have that, they yeah. would just go to the market house and yeah, buy one and cook right it for you yeah, if yeah, you were the, willing to wait. Yeah, I've heard that. The waiter would uh, would walk right out. and uh, Yeah, the Gold Sun was an amazing thing at 37 Market Square, later, later called Perulis, but uh, it was... Uh, it was arguably, it may have been our first ethnic restaurant. Uh, it, w- it was founded in, uh, in around 1908 or 9 by uh, Greek families. They catered not only to the local Greek population, but also to the, uh, in the 20s when Arabs from Lebanon and Palestine were coming into Nasser in fairly small numbers, but present enough to constitute a, a bit of a customer base. Uh, the Gold Sun would prepare Eastern Mediterranean food for these people, uh, Greek people had some idea how to cook for these folks. So the menu it was something I think they just paid lip service to at the Gold Sun. <laughs> but uh, but you, yeah. it sounded like you could, if you could order anything, if they knew how to make it, and, uh, and if it were in the market house, which almost everything was, um, yeah. you could just run out there and get it. It's amazing how much different kinds of food, things that we think of as, uh, as modern, even like, like different kinds of pasta, uh, were available on Market Square back in the 1870s. Uh, they had spaghetti and vermicelli and other sorts of things. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. The thing that uh, the, I was never in that building. I, I was a little bit too young to ever have actually been in it before it was torn down. But you know, everybody who does remember it recalls the odor. Yes, yeah. the thing that everybody <laughs> talks about the the yeah. smell of the. And it was particularly, I guess, it was the meat markets that were there, the fish uh-huh. stalls the fish and the meat markets yeah. that had. Uh, Waste products or byproducts that were uh, extremely smelly. Yeah, if you, yeah, in yeah. the days with no, you know, refrigeration, no way to, you know, to get rid of these unwanted parts of uh, food products that mm-hmm. really smell pretty awful, and and that's something that everybody came back with. And yet they sold all kinds of food in mm-hmm. the market house that you could just ready to eat. Yeah, so it yeah. must have been a really kind of unusual place. I mean. To, to visit and walk around, and, and the people in the, the old photographs that, that I've seen are always 
extremely well dressed. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one people were in there shopping. In the days before refrigeration, or when you had just an ice box, you really couldn't keep a lot of food very long. Then you had to shop the way people want to now, and that is, you know, buying less ahead that's pre-processed or frozen or whatever. That just wasn't an option back mm-hmm. then. That, that's true. It, it was, uh, I won't say it was frustrating, but I, every time I, I, I interviewed maybe 50 people for the book, and the time in, in, uh, in living memory of the market square uh, is very well documented mm-hmm. on newspapers. And here at the McClung Collection, there's you know very thick files about market square after 1950 or so. But and I was trying to add some color to it and something unique. But I would every time I would interview somebody old enough to remember the the market house well, they'd always come back to that. Oh, I remember the smell, and they always <laughs> tell, tell me this as if I'm, this, they're the first person ever, the, the only person alive who remembers the smell. But there are thousands of people alive apparently who remember the smell yeah. of the. Uh, the market house. I did find a, a few people who uh, remember the specific uh, sources of it, and mm-hmm. some remember uh, Mr. Lipner's uh, uh, fish market. It was mm-hmm. a half kosher, half not uh, fish market. Louis Lipner was uh, was an immigrant from Vienna, uh, mm-hmm. Austria, uh, who uh, was there, and the smell was. Uh, I think if, if you if you like fish and know how to buy fish, I know from I just got back from a trip to South Carolina. I was in, in Georgetown, and there's a, a fish market there that. Is really really smelly, uh, but it's, it's where you go for the really really fresh really, fish. Really good fish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's nothing nothing wrong with that from a from a, a shopper's perspective if you, if you know what you're doing. Yeah. That was interesting to me. That and this is one of the the fascinating things to me about Market Square is that it was always full of immigrants. You know, Peter uh-huh. Kern was from Germany who built the most substantial edifice on the square, which is still there, the old Kern Bakery, which is uh-huh. now the the uh, Market Square Kitchen and the St. Oliver Hotel. And, mm-hmm. um, but he was from across the seas. And it's it's interesting that this guy, Curran, who had lived in New York and Charleston, I think, before he came to Knoxville, um, spent the last 40 years of his life on Market Square because he didn't have to cross the street to get to his house. He lived mm-hmm. back on uh, Walnut Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went to church across the street at, at the St. Christian Church, uh, which was then at, uh, on Market Street. And when he was mayor, he was the last immigrant mayor of Knoxville. He, he just had to walk out of Market Square to his, uh, to his <laughs> office as mayor. So, so, but this guy is fascinating. This guy who had traveled the world and, and by, by the standards of the day was content to, to stay on Market Square. But at the same time, I mean, there, there were more chances of running into immigrants and hearing different languages on Market Square than probably anywhere else with the possible exception of like the Hunter block of Gay Street near the train station. Mm-hmm. But it was also the, the place you're most likely to, to find real country people who had never seen salt water, you know, uh, who would uh, yeah. who just came from the mountains or, or valleys, fields around, and to sell their their produce on, on Market Square was the best the best market for farmers' produce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the farmers were still coming even in the 1960s after the market house was torn down. There were still some folks who came to the to the market square to sell things that they grew, but that really died out within, you know, a decade yeah. of, of the market house being demolished, I think. There were a couple who hung on. I remember uh, uh, Mr. Perkins, who was there up up through the 90s and maybe maybe barely into this century, uh, who was from, he had a farm on uh, the French Broad, who was, but he, he came to market square typically during the growing season, about three days a week, and would sell. And, and how ironic that we now have a farmers market back on Market Square, and that people are looking to find food grown closer to home than ever. So that's yeah. a, a yeah. real, it's a real 180 degree turn for 
society. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's it's wonderful that I think every year, except possibly the year that, what, 04, I think the year that they were actually redoing the square, mm-hmm. something has been sold, some kind of produce has been sold on Martin mm-hmm. Square since 1854. Um, so that, that's, mm-hmm. an, that's an incredible record. Yeah. And, and, and I think, by the way, that farmer's market you mentioned is a really wonderful thing. Anybody that hasn't mm-hmm. been to it yet is missing something. The crowds downtown on, on weekends are are amazing. When you think about a few years ago, you could have shot a gun down Gay Street without worrying about hitting mm-hmm. anybody yeah. on a weekend, and now there are people wandering around everywhere, yeah. and the stores are... You, you, might, have, you might have hit me, but that would <laughs> be, be the only one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The market, what, I was there a couple weeks ago, and it was 65 vendors or something like that, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and you know, well over a thousand people shopping. Yeah, um, the interest in and slow food, the food grown locally and, and organically and close to home is uh, is pretty amazing, and it's yeah. quite a turnaround. And, yeah. Your old market house might be doing really well if it were still standing yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. When the uh, market house was torn down, the person who, uh, probably more than any other person who prevented uh, something untoward from happening to the vacant lot was probably Owen Hazen, hmm. uh, yeah. who raised the question in the public mind of the reversionary clause in the deed mm-hmm. from her ancestor uh, Mabry and from Swan that if that did not remain as a public market then mm-hmm. the land reverted to the heirs yeah yeah and the city I think was all set to do something different with that uh, yeah. pl- your your yeah. plaza <laughs> your I got that impression too yeah and then her lawyers kind of put the kibosh on that yeah and we ended up with the famous concrete toadstools in the 1960s which more of us remember than remember the market house. Yeah, yeah. One thing I was surprised about uh, in, in researching the square, I grew up hearing people make fun of Market Square Mall. And I remember by the 70s, certainly, it, it was not a pretty thing. I didn't realize that for the first 10 years of it or so, it was considered a great success, uh, not only here, but even uh, I found descriptions of it in uh, newspapers in Australia and Canada and other places, people said this is a wonderful and modern pedestrian mall uh, that they're <laughs> and uh, and I, it seems to have been fairly functional with the exception of Kaz Walker's front, which may have been deliberately kept closed for a while. Mm-hmm. I think it was nearly completely occupied. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they must have recognized at some point in the before the end of the '60s that it, it was not everything they wanted it to be. They first touted it as a daytime and nighttime place. They had lights on the fountains and stuff. And I don't have the impression that it was considered a popular family sort of place to go to at at night uh, by the end of that decade. Um, you know, that was that was in the days when the Gold Sun was open twenty four hours and doors um, never locked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, it was a it was successful articulation of a, of a passing fad. I mm. think in a way it is what it was a a victim of modernism in yeah. a way. Yeah. Well, I think the thing that fascinated. Um, other cities and planners was that the city was successful in not attracting a mall, a mm-hmm. suburban mall, uh-huh. for so long. It was in 1970 when uh, Westtown Mall opened that the uh, handwriting was on the wall, and that that, that didn't become apparent immediately. But the, the downtown uh, merchants had banded together and put the uh, the big canopy along Gay Street. And, these, and mm-hmm. this uh, mall, and, and they had been fairly successful for a time in, in staving off uh, suburbanization, but it was really, looking back, it mm-hmm. was inevitable that it was mm-hmm. going to happen. It mm-hmm. just took a little longer here than other places. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of Evelyn Hazen and the Mabrys, uh, uh, it was uh, Joe Mabry, her, was it grandfather or great-grandfather? Mm-hmm. I don't remember. 
um, was uh, one of the early two developers who who got together and donated the Market Square space to the city. They had bought uh, 10 or 11 acres right around that area and decided if they, if they had the public permanent city market that would always be the city market right in the middle of this of this area that their property value would would go way up and, and at this time at the time they, they did this this wasn't necessarily the, the commercial center of town it was you know, the commercial center of town was four or five blocks away close to the river around the right. courthouse area I think they were very forward-thinking and successful businessmen and they uh, were looking ahead to the impact that the railroad was going to have because mm-hmm. the yeah. railroad station had been had just been completed, and the railroads were just joining together to run through the valley of East Tennessee. And, mm-hmm. and they were shrewd. They bought up this big piece of land near the railroad station and tried to build a magnet to make the city grow to the railroad, which it yeah, did. That's, it was that's very true. successful. Yeah, it was just, what, about a year, I guess, before their first mm-hmm. train yeah. came into Knoxville that, that Market Square was opened. And it was the Market House first. Mm-hmm. And by the time of the Civil War, it was called Market Square. Mm-hmm. And some of the, the information I got about the old days came from speeches that people gave uh, remembering their, their youth in Market Square. And, uh, and one of them was, was Sam High School, I think it was the, on, the, on the occasion of the opening of the Market House, mm-hmm. uh, that he, he said he, he remembered when, uh, uh, when the uh, northeastern corner of Market Square wasn't built yet and there was just uh, you know, some uh, empty space over there. And at the time, uh, it was used to sell things, and people would sell, uh, you know, the area, I'm talking about the area around where the Preservation Pub and that area is um, to the north in the 1860s. Um, but he said that he saw his first bicycle for sale on that little, little plot of land. Hmm. And this is something that comes up over and over. How many things did people see for the first time in their lives on Market hmm. Square? Uh, and but you still get those people who you know, have all these wonderful little outdoor eating places in downtown Knoxville, and you still get those people who give you the evil eye when you're sitting outside having uh, lunch. And, you know, there's that one woman that goes around and says, what do you people think this is, Europe? <laughs> I, I think I know her. Yeah. I think you do. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah, eating outdoors, uh, I, I guess it's an international trend, actually, because yeah. I, I look at the uh, New York Times travel section, and uh, every time they have a, a feature about any town in, in the world, they show mm-hmm. people sitting, sitting in outdoor outdoors. cafes. So. Whether it's you know, yeah. you know any major city, any place now, that's sort yeah. of the thing to do. But, but, but people it's, certainly it, like it. They can get fills up. They it. they do. But, yeah, I think the Tomato Head was uh, when they when they started seeing people outside in '91 or '92. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, everybody wanted to have a sidewalk cafe. Yeah. And, uh, there were there were a few places around, and then all it just mushroomed. And now there, are, I think I, I counted twelve sidewalk cafes on Market Square. Like, uh, and that was a couple months ago. And more proposed. Yeah, I'm just a. Uh, Really, uh, I, I wish that had happened 20 years ago, but I'm really pleased uh, to, to see Market Square being, being I think, very well preserved and, and used in, in the spirit of its original uh, intent. Um, and the fact that we have something like this that, that is as old as it is, it's, it's, you know, for 155 years now we've had a Market Square with that's kind of a gathering place, uh, and, uh, and, and it's, it's still like that. But... Going back and trying to recreate those days, and, and it, when Mabry and Swan, William Swan, his partner, um, were uh, were putting this thing together, it occurred to me that people thought of uh, of a market house at the time, as, as kind of the way that we, we may think of a performing arts center or something like that today, or a convention center maybe, mm-hmm. is a mark yeah. of a of a you know the next step up as a city. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was a, a reason to to build it. And there wasn't a lot of practical need for it in, in 1853 or four, uh, which is. I think why it was not immediately popular mm-hmm. because people were used to buying from 
from wagons on Gay Street. You know, mm-hmm. the farmers would just come and park wherever they wanted to park, and and people would buy uh, their produce. And farmers weren't that far away anyway. You could just walk half a mile away and, and find yourself in farmland. All right. Uh-huh. Well, thanks, Mom. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and thank you for your for your help on the See You've been listening to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast of the Knox County Public Library. The podcast archives are available from our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G. On the podcast page, you can read article transcripts and find links to library resources related to the subject. You can leave your comments on each episode and support the podcast by linking to it with the handy share button. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License Copyright 2009 by Knox County Public Library. The music was performed by Music Therapy and our reader was Robbie Griffith. I'm Melissa Brenneman. Join us again for another journey into Knoxville's past. <laughs>